Hey everyone, this is Marjorie Green. I'm excited to talk to you guys today. I want to go through the entire story of everything that's been going on. If you live in the U.S., you are more than likely already aware of Marjorie Taylor Green, the House representative from the state of Georgia's 14th district. It's a story that if you were actually to write this in a book, um, honestly, I probably would quit reading the book because it's so unbelievable. She is the one who believes the following. The Democrats run a child trafficking ring to harvest a chemical called adrenochrome from their bodies. This is partially done out of a pizza parlor slash music venue in Washington, D.C. I mean, is it going to be true that the child pedophilia and the elites in the Washington, D.C., is that what we're really going to see come out? 9-11 was orchestrated by the deep state. The terrorist attack in New York and the plane that crashed in Pennsylvania and the so-called plane that crashed into the Pentagon. It's odd there's never any evidence shown for a plane in the Pentagon. Donald Trump actually won the 2020 election over Biden. According to Q, many in our government are actively worshiping Satan. And school shootings like Parkland and Sandy Hook were actually false flag operations perpetrated by communists who had infiltrated the U.S. government. I've got a question for you. How do you get avid gun owners and people that support the Second Amendment to give up their guns and go along with anti-gun legislation? Maybe you accomplish that by performing a mass shooting into a crowd that is very likely to be conservative. Is that what happened in Las Vegas? She's sort of a greatest hits album of conspiracy theories. It's not just Democrat and Republican, left and right. You can dive down in that civil war into deeper levels. The deep state is fighting back against President Trump, the loyal people in his administration, and the American people, okay? There's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to take this global cable of Satan-worshipping pedophiles out. And so I wanted to talk to you about them. I'm not presenting them that they're fact, but I am presenting them that I'm hoping they're facts. In January 2021, just a few months after assuming her office in Congress, reports began springing up left and right about these claims. These roused enough of an uproar that Congress voted to remove her from her seats on two committees. One particular post that Green had liked on Facebook was repeatedly cited. It is a huge block of text that starts with, 9-11 was an inside job to take away rights, and eventually ends up where all of these theories eventually end up, the New World Order. Very basically, the rich and powerful want to form a worldwide super government to control everyone. Well, it's a well-known fact, Sonny Jim, that there's a secret society of the five wealthiest people in the world, known as the Pentavrit, mm. who run everything in the world, including the newspapers, the Queen, the Vatican, the Gettys, the Rothschilds, and Colonel Sanders before he went tetsa. But there's one postscript that caught Green's attention, enough for her to respond and point it out, using it as a factual justification to hang all of the Post's claims on. She wrote, That's all true. I've seen the Georgia Guidestones. To be absolutely clear, I don't believe any of these claims. But I am fascinated by how these ideas spread, who is susceptible to them, and how they justify these irrational, easily debunked claims to themselves. 
What do they point towards to say, see? So I thought, even if I can't convince the already conspiratorial, I can at least head them off at the pass and figure out the real story behind these guidestones and start there. As it turns out, they are born out of a mysterious and fascinating set of circumstances over 40 years old, and there are still secrets surrounding them today. But they're probably not what Green thinks they are. In eastern Georgia, about 20 miles from the South Carolina border, on a small hill in the middle of farmland just off of Highway 77, stand five rectangular monoliths, each over 16 feet high, arranged to form an intersection and capped with a stone weighing 25,000 pounds. Carved out of massive blocks of granite, these stones cast shadows over Elbert County, Georgia, where tourists and conspiracy theorists alike flock to catch a glimpse. All right, guys, we finally made it. This is really spooky, really tell you the truth. I mean, it's pretty weird. Georgia Granite Company did this, right? Mm-hmm. I remember some guys that, that worked, worked for there, they worked on this deal. Um, El- they told El- me it was f***ed up. Alberton Granite Museum and Exhibit, Alberton, Georgia. Yep. Yep. Unbelievable. These are the Georgia Guidestones. The stones themselves are really a marvel of craftsmanship. They weigh almost 120 tons in total and are covered in etched symbols. On the outward faces of the capstone are Egyptian hieroglyphics, Babylonian cuneiform, Sanskrit, and Greek, and the four standing stones on each face have the same ten phrases in eight languages. The Guidestones aren't only a marvel of stonework and craftsmanship, though. They're also a feat of astronomy. A shaft drilled through the central stone allows viewers to track the North Star. At noon, a slit in the center lets sunlight shine through, and corners and slots also allow for the prediction of sunrise, sunset, solstices, and equinoxes. It's a calendar, sundial, star tracker, and monument all in one. And no one knows who built it. How and why the Guidestones were built has never been answered. That's actually only partially true, though. We know who built the Georgia Guidestones, like, physically. But that's just part of a much larger much more odd story. We walk above it every day. All around us, things are made out of it. Buildings, bridges, memorials. But have you ever stopped to think about that rock called granite and where it comes from? Elberton, Georgia, calls itself the granite capital of the world. 
There aren't any real statistics to justify this title, but it's not disputed that the granite industry is very, very important to the local economy. Geologists have identified a deposit of granite here that's about 35 miles long, averages about six miles wide, and they estimate it to be two to three miles in depth. So naturally, one of the reasons why the industry began here is because we're blessed with this great abundance of this natural resource. The farmers looked on these rocks that they encountered out in the fields as a, as a big nuisance, not realizing that uh, uh, one day that would really be fields of gold for them. The local football and soccer stadium is called the Granite Bowl. There's an Elberton Granite Museum and exhibit that houses a famous statue. In fact, the first granite plant here was built especially so the local townspeople could have their own Confederate memorial, erected on Elberton's public square in 1898. Oh, yes, I should mention, it is a Confederate monument. So, no love lost there. People thought the statue was ridiculous, saying it looked like a Union soldier, or worse, certainly not a Confederate hero. As legend has it, one spectator said the statue looked like a cross between a Pennsylvania Dutchman and a hippopotamus. Hence, he was named Dutchy, and it wasn't long before the townspeople could stand him no more. After two years standing on Elberton's town square, some local young men pulled Dutchy down one August night in 1900 and buried him. But exactly where Dutchy was buried remained a mystery until 1981. The Elberton Granite Association somehow found the statue, dug him up, cleaned him at a car wash, and put him in a museum. Granite is now the largest industry in town. There are more than 250 granite companies employing 2,200 people with an annual payroll of $46 million. In 1979, a man named Joe Fendley was president of the Elberton Granite Finishing Company. He'd originally gotten into the granite business by making pet memorials, but the company had since taken up jobs making headstones, fountains, and all manner of stonework. But on this clear, summer Friday afternoon, he was closing up shop when, as if stepping through a portal from a mysterious realm, a balding gentleman wearing a very nice, expensive-looking suit enters. He spoke with an accent that suggested he wasn't from the area, and in a small town like Elbert, this was pretty easy to confirm. The mysterious man wanted to commission a monument. At first, Fendley waves him off and says, can't help you, our company doesn't sell directly to the public, they deal in wholesale. But the man insists he at least listen to his request. The man introduces himself by the name R.C. Christian, and he starts describing what he wanted built, and his ideas are grand and in-depth. Fendley's curiosity is piqued at this point, and he stops closing up to listen more intently. Nothing his company has ever done has been this involved or expensive, so he tries to brush Christian off by quoting him a ridiculously high price for the job. But much to his surprise, Christian is undaunted. Even after Fendley assures him this is only an estimate and it could be even more expensive, Christian is like, no, it's okay. I want this done and I want it done right. He then asks Fendley for references for local banks in Elberton County and he leaves. (laughs) 
half an hour later, Christian shows up across town at another local establishment, the Granite City Bank, and is greeted by the bank's president, a man named Wyatt C. Martin. Christian explains himself to Martin like he did before with Fendley, but tells him that it's not just Christian who wants this monument built. He was actually working on behalf of a group who's been planning this for over 20 years. A group of Americans who believe in God, he said, who want to leave a message for future generations. And this group wants to remain anonymous. So a group of anonymous people from somewhere unknown has sent a representative to a town in the middle of rural Georgia to build a monument. Christian then flat out tells Martin the name he gave, R.C. Christian, isn't even his real name. It's a pseudonym. Martin at this point is like, uh, okay, you know what, I, I want to show you something. And he leads Christian down to the Elberton Town Square to the city's Bicentennial Memorial Fountain. And he says, this is the biggest project we've ever done like this around here. And what you're talking about is way bigger. He says, I think you would do better to throw whatever money you were planning on spending in the gutter. But Christian is determined still. He says, I'm going to come back on Monday and prove to you that I mean business. So he walks out, gets on a private chartered plane, and leaves town. Over the weekend, Fenley and Martin talk to each other about this stranger showing up out of the blue, and after not hearing from him for several days, they decide between them it was all an elaborate practical joke, and they laugh it off. Ha ha, very funny. But then, Monday, Christian shows up at the bank again, just like he said he would. At this point, tired of getting yanked around by this guy who won't even tell them who he really is, Martin at the bank basically gives him an ultimatum. He says, a fake name and an IOU is not enough to get this huge project started. Christian says, okay, fine. I can prove it to you. He reportedly makes Martin sign a confidentiality agreement, then tells him his real name and gives him documents to verify his identity and finances. He then tells Martin, now, I can't be here all the time to supervise this project, and it's going to be very involved. So I want you, Martin, to be the intermediary. I'll just communicate anything the group wants to you, and you can make that happen, since you know who I am and I can trust you. And then to prove it even more, he deposits $10,000 in the Elberton Granite City Bank. As soon as Martin gets that deposit, he gives Fenley the go-ahead and things start moving very quickly. Pyramid Blue Granite from Fenley's Pyramid Quarry was chosen for the monument. The stones themselves were so massive in scale, it took weeks to quarry each one, with a crane pulling them from 100 feet deep in the earth. It took more than nine months to get them all to the exact specifications. A special burner was trucked to Elberton specifically for this project, which they would later become famous for pioneering the use of. This technique burns fuel oil mixed with oxygen at a temperature of 2,800 degrees. It doesn't melt the granite, but it literally blasts it apart. Once the outline of the block is cut, horizontal holes are drilled and dynamite frees the granite. 
The entire process is actually very well documented, with all of the individual workers from the quarry, the sandblasters, draft persons, stonecutters, erectors, foremen, all recorded and photographed. Frank and his two brothers working behind him are among the most skilled and highest paid granite workers in town. To get the rock in the shape and stuff, we don't have a machine or anything that will uh, break it into shapes and all that. Uh, you can put it in because it's so brittle, you have to work it with a hammer and a chisel. All throughout this, Martin is getting letters from Christian with instructions. As he passed the information on to Fendley and the workers doing the labor, Martin would censor them so that no one in between could figure out Christian's true identity or even where he was communicating from. While the stonework is going on, Martin also sets out to find where the heck in Elberton these monoliths are going to stand. He finds about eight places in the county for possible sites and ends up choosing the last one, a five-acre plot eight miles north of the city of Elberton, on the Double Seven Farm, owned by Mildred and Wayne Mullinix. It's actually the highest point in the entire county. It's really not super high up, it's a rather small hill, and is less than a thousand feet away from Mullinix's house. Martin meets with Mullinix and agrees to pay $5,000 for the land, and also gives him cattle grazing rights for the next two generations, and agrees that Mullinix's construction company gets to lay the foundation for the Guidestones. With the land purchased, monuments being completed, and payments finalized, Christian, on his last trip to Elberton, goes to the granite finishing company and tells Joe Fendley, you'll never see me again, then turns and walks out the door, vanishing with the horizon as he drives away. Nine months after Martin and Fendley were approached with this outrageous proposition, on March 22, 1980, in front of a crowd of 400 people, the Georgia Guidestones were officially unveiled. <laughs> At the end of the process, the entire project cost $500,000, or $1.6 million in today's money, used 951 cubic feet of granite, and was 19 feet, 3 inches tall, weighing almost 120 tons. Upon completion, Martin reportedly shredded all material concerning the project, and stated he would never reveal the true identity of R.C. Christian. Over the next few years, Martin would receive letters from him, always from a different city. He would occasionally return to a payphone at the Atlanta airport and call Martin to catch up, but that was the extent of their discussions. He eventually asked that the ownership of the land and monument be transferred to Elbert County, who still holds it to this day. So far as we know, Wyatt C. Martin is the only person confirmed to know the true identity of R.C. Christian.
There is no denying the Guidestones themselves are a beautiful work of craftsmanship. People still go to Elberton today to see them where they remain, standing on a hill on Wayne Mullenix's farm in a remote area. There's no souvenir stands or refreshment sales, just the stone pillars rising into the sky, as Christian requested. The Georgia Guidestones not only act as an astronomical guide, showing visitors the time, date, and specific points in the sky, but also as a guide to, as the inscription on the capstone states, an age of reason. In addition to the Babylonian cuneiform, hieroglyphics, Sanskrit, and Greek as mentioned before, each of the four outer stones have the same ten phrases written on them, a different language on each face. These eight languages, in contrast to the more archaic ones inscribed on the capstone, were chosen because they were considered the eight most widely used at the time it was built. English, Spanish, Swahili, Hindi, Hebrew, Arabic, Chinese, and Russian. It sort of functions as a Rosetta Stone in that way. The stones are beautiful, but it's what's etched into them that gives a lot of people pause. Reading the phrases from the bottom up, the messages start rather benign. Be not a cancer on the earth. Leave room for nature. Leave room for nature. Prize truth, beauty, love, seeking harmony with the infinite. Moving upward, the next few lean a little bit more political. Balance personal rights with social duties. Avoid petty laws and useless officials. Then they get outright prescriptive. Let all nations rule internally, resolving external disputes in a world court. Protect people and nations with fair laws and just courts. Rule passion, faith, tradition, and all things with tempered reason. Unite humanity with a living new language. At this point, there are people who have already been put off, namely people who are upset about globalists. But the last two are really what tend to seal the deal for most people that these stones have dangerous intent. Guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. Maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. Wow. Oh, that's interesting. That's a directive? The directive makes some believe that the Guidestones are calling for the mass murder of billions of innocent people. So, how many people we gotta kill? We gotta kill a lot of people. Well, Monsanto's doing a good job. Maybe, maybe Monsanto, maybe they did this. It's a good possibility. Those last two became the flashpoint for much of the controversy here, though with relatively good reason. They are essentially explicit calls for eugenics, which I just want to clarify is definitely bad. However, instead of simply saying, wow, a group of anonymous, well-off people had some really messed up ideas, that's never happened before, I wonder why Elberton thinks it's a good idea to keep this up. Their anonymity has fueled conspiratorial thinking. The suggestion to unite the world under one universal language, while less eye-catching than the eugenics, has really riled up one particularly loud critical group. Are you serious? Are you serious, folks? The Georgia Guidestones. This is the Ten Commandments of the New World Order. What do they mean? 
What is the code of the new world order? Are the Georgia Guidestones right? When the Georgia Guidestones say, oh, maintain the population of the earth perpetually at 500 million. That's what the Georgia Guidestones say. I wonder if it has something to do with worshiping Satan. I wonder if it has something to do with worshiping idols. I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that their country is filled with demons that they're worshiping. Everything that's happening for the most part is not accidental, it's strategic. All the things that appear to be random are not random, they're part of a plan. The New World Order is not a new concept. Its objective from the Genesis until today is to rebel against the authority of God. What? Something biblical is going on. The scripture talks about this beast kingdom, right? And there is a mystery Babylon that rides on the, the beast. beast. Will rise with ten horns. And those horns will have crowns, they will be kings, and they have the name blasphemy. And they answer to one antichrist being with seven heads or seven continents and ten horns, and then a little horn, which is the antichrist, rising up among it, the leader. Are you serious? So we know that there are nations because the beast is made up of many kingdoms it's the globalist new world order depopulation eugenicist that'll tell you hey you know we need to cut the population there there's a big giant stone whatever in georgia the georgia guidestones it's like a stonehenge in america and if you go there it's etched in stone that we the, the commandments of of the of the new age weirdos that are running the world that we live in today through the governments and financial institutions. You say, you're crazy. Oh, go look at it. In Georgia, it's etched in stone on a gigantic monument. It says to never let the population of the world go above 500 million. Well, I've got news for you. There are 7 billion people in the world. So I guess they want 90% of us gone. This is it. I mean, this is the declaration of their war against us and that the Bible has predicted and has warned us that the kingdom of uh, the Antichrist is coming and reigning and will come into power and that we are in the last days. I'm telling you, something biblical's going on with the signs of the second coming of Christ as the new world order, the spirit of the Illuminati, the beast, rises. So will the false prophet and the mark of the beast, which is 666. Are you saved? The pseudonym of R.C. Christian also raises some theories, the most common of which is that the name R.C. Christian is a reference to the Rosicrucian Order, or their symbol, the Rosy Cross. If you try to deface this, you can go to jail. I mean. Yes, uh, if you'll notice, the Elbert County Sheriff's Department has some surveillance cameras oh, set that's up. Who's that's who's been watching. We thought the Rosicrucians were right. keeping an eye on us. Oh, well, no, they've got the satellite for that. <laughs> okay. Without getting into too much detail, the Rosicrucians were a group of esoteric, Christian-adjacent mystics who rose to prominence in the 17th century. They believed they had discovered powers of alchemy, psychokinesis, astral projection, and telepathy. The Rosicrucians were different from historically, but usually get lumped in with groups like the Freemasons or Illuminati. Where the Illuminati shows up, we inevitably end up back where we started. The belief that these stones aren't just the work of a single group, but, oh, you guessed it, the New World Order. Sir Francis Bacon in the mid-1600s planned for America to be the new Atlantis and the head of the New World Order. 
He was the head of the Rosicrucians, which became the Illuminati, an occult secret society, which goes back to ancient Babylon. All right. That name means enlightened ones. The Illuminati, they're still in existence today, very powerful occult organization that runs the world. Remember, the Illuminati financed the communists and they financed Hitler. They also backed the KKK. They were a super secret organization of international financial power brokers in Europe and they had as their goal a worldwide empire, a new world order. Their leadership consisted, listen, of Satanist and atheist. Ironic that followers of the Prince of Darkness thought of themselves as the source of light. There is one theory that is a little bit more charitable in its outlook. The Georgia Guidestones were erected in 1980 during the Cold War. As such, there was a lot of fear of mutually assured destruction caused by nuclear weapons. Many looked to the Guidestones then not as a guide for the current population, but as one that would stand the test of time, as Christian said, and guide those who might survive beyond our impending doom. So less of a kill everyone right now, the planet's dying, and more of a in the future when the planet's already dead, maybe keep it in your pants a little bit. But there's a slight problem with this theory. Even if you take this charitable assumption seriously, it's still eugenics. In fact, it doesn't even do much to assuage me in particular because eventually there was a book published under the name Robert Christian called Common Sense Renewed, a play on Thomas Paine's common sense. It was published and privately distributed, so finding a hard copy these days is actually very difficult to do, but it is entirely digitized online. And guess what? It's chock full of outright eugenics. And not a, oh, if something bad happens, maybe we should be careful. It explicitly says nearly every nation is overpopulated in terms of perpetual balance with nature. We are like a fleet of overcrowded lifeboats confronted with an approaching tempest. These overpopulation theories have some kind of complex origins that you should definitely be aware of, but the way they've been tied into rational and scientific thought is primarily exhibited in the work of a small, old-school strain of the Green Movement from the 60s and 70s that was really just white supremacy and anti-immigration advocacy in disguise, sort of using environmentalism as a Trojan horse. The truth is, the world's population has boomed in the last century and will continue to do so up to a certain point by most estimates. However, most of this growth is going to be concentrated in specific parts of the world, namely Africa and Southeast Asia, where these less wealthy populations tend to create less environmental impact than people like me. Basically, these calls to reduce population growth tend to be focused on reducing populations in certain countries. Countries with a lot of black and brown people. Unfortunately, it gets even worse. Common Sense Renewed goes on further to say that the U.S. has become entangled in a bureaucracy run by civil service elites, which sounds pretty familiar. The deep state is fighting back against President Trump, the loyal people in his administration, and the American people, okay? Eye in the sky. They're watching. They're watching. They want to make sure that this is safe because they've got a purpose. They've got an agenda. 
of what they want to do. Uh, depopulate the planet, uh, the plane, of course, as we know it. Many in our government are actively worshiping Satan. I mean, is it going to be true that the child pedophilia in the elites in the Washington, D.C., is that what we're really going to see come out? There's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to take this global cable of Satan-worshipping pedophiles out. And so I wanted to talk to you about them. I'm not presenting them that they're fact, but I am presenting them that I'm hoping they're facts. The truth is out there. Name any conspiracy theory you can think of. I can almost guarantee that I can find a clip from someone talking about the Georgia Guidestones and how they are indicative of it. Flat Earthers, QAnon, Plandemic, Illuminati, Obama Birthers, any and all of them. They share a practice of shoddy semiotic analysis that grifters pounce on whenever they get the chance. The Georgia Guidestones have been featured in the writings of Mark Dice and even Alex Jones, who mentions them in passing in his 2007 documentary, Endgame, Blueprint for a Global Enslavement. Our species will be condemned to this nightmare future unless the masses are awakened to the New World Order master plan and mobilized to defeat it. Erected by a secretive group, the Georgia Guidestones are a testament to the elite's plan for a world religion, global laws, with a global court and army to enforce it. And set in stone, it is written that the population never rise above 500 million. I think their inclusion really emphasizes how mutable their meaning has become. Since Jones has touted everything from chemtrails to fluoridated gay frogs, and yes, the pandemic. These New World Order, Deep State, Secret Cabal conspiracy theories all being remixed showcase how they're basically a not-so-subtle lift of classic anti-Semitic propaganda. A secret cabal, Protocols of the Elders of Zion, of international power brokers, i.e. Jewish bankers, controlling the world and running a human trafficking ring to kidnap and harvest a chemical from children's bodies. The oldest claim in the book, blood libel. These people aren't uncovering anything or discovering plots. They're not even coming up with their own ideas out of whole cloth. They're just recycling the red string of already debunked old theories. Which makes the claims about Nazism and supporting the KKK and all of that New World Order stuff that gets mixed up with it, all that much more confusing. Until you start to realize how these conspiracy theories work. The trouble is, people who tend to get wrapped up in one theory tend to get wrapped up in many of them soon after. It doesn't matter what the conspiracy is. If you're a person who can somehow see patterns that don't exist, you can easily come to believe all of them, even if they don't align with your particular view of dark hegemonic forces. Because the very fact that you're seeing strings being pulled that aren't there is just further proof that it goes deeper than you ever first realized. It's why conspiracy theory models start out by treating them like a game, Q 
is trying to tell people on these forums and 4chan, and he's trying to tell people the truth. And he does it through questions, asking questions, asking questions, and giving clues. And so it's basically, you know, you're going down the rabbit hole. You're following the white rabbit, and you're figuring it out. QAnon actually began as a sort of morbid, anonymous role-playing in-joke on image boards like 4chan before it spread beyond that, and eventually gullible readers took it as fact, and grifters ran with it. The game becomes someone's gain, and it makes sense how it's successful. It's like stories we enjoy on TV or in movies, with simple good and bad sides, many times with the little plucky guy fighting against the unstoppable forces. But when that fight spills out into the real world, it becomes more than a story. Last summer, a QAnon supporter barricaded himself inside an armored vehicle on the Hoover Dam. Robert Bowers, who shot 11 people dead at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. In 2016, a man shot up a Washington, D.C. restaurant after the Pizzagate conspiracy theory convinced him Democrats were running a child sex ring inside. Patrick Crucius, who killed 23 people in El Paso, Texas. The gunman who killed 11 at a Pittsburgh synagogue was allegedly motivated by a conspiracy theory about migrants. Brenton Tarrant who murdered 51 in Christchurch, New Zealand. If we have a sea of people, if we shut down the streets, if we shut down everything, if we flood the Capitol building, flood all the government buildings, go inside. These are public buildings. We own them. We own these buildings. Do you understand that? We own the buildings and we pay all the people. These types of theories tend to gain power during times of crisis. The Salem witch trials occurred during a time of puritanical reform. QAnon was inflamed by a tumultuous presidency, election cycle, and COVID-19. And the Georgia Guidestones were erected during the Cold War. Asia Romano writes for Vox that times when our world seems shaky or is changing are fertile ground for this kind of thinking. It helps give people a sense of order to random events, can distract from existential fears of the unknown, and sharing them creates an oddly validating community. As for the Guidestones themselves, what they are, separate from their intent, is a hodgepodge of conspiracy. No matter who you ask, the Georgia Guidestones carry a message that can be contorted to fit your enemy. It's manifesto garbage. They carry a message of dastardly implications, but the responses are just as dangerous. An age of reason seems fine on its face. Yes, we shouldn't be a cancer on the earth. We should temper all things with reason. But they are, at most, really just a fun guessing game. The story behind them is fascinating, not as a symbol for some grand plan, but as a strange roadside attraction. The Georgia Guidestones were on the edge of the path of totality during the Great American Eclipse of 2017. Hundreds of people from all over the country flocked to the hillside on Wayne Mullenix's farm to see the once-in-a-lifetime celestial event. For a landmark that's so mired in controversy and dark coverage, it's almost relieving to see footage where it's treated like a normal community meeting place. 
There are people looking through telescopes, tailgaters, kids running around with their eclipse glasses on, people on blankets picnicking around the massive stone monument on top of the hill. But as the moon passed in front of the sun, blotting out the light, a second shadow was cast on the monument. Some had already been blinded. You Only Guide Me by Surprise is written, produced, and edited by me, Landry Ayers. This story was partially adapted from a 2009 article for Wired Magazine by Randall Sullivan, and the music was by Blue Dot Sessions. If you want to hear more stories like this, and some not so much like it, please follow You Only Guide Me by Surprise wherever you listen to podcasts, and please share it with a friend. Thanks for listening and you'll hear more from me soon.